well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So this week, I wanted to start off things a little differently. The particular topic I'm covering this week, which is how to pick the board game for you, can be a little bit uh, long just because there's so many different types of board games. And honestly, I'm not even going to be able to probably hit every single type of board game that's out there. I'm planning to just kind of hit some of the main types so that people have a better idea of what's out there as an option. But because of that, I'm going to do my quick little blurb mid-roll thing right now. So I want to start off by talking about World Anvil. World Anvil is an amazing world-building website. So if you are an author or any kind of dungeon master or game master wanting to build your world, then it's a great resource to use. They've got ways to link characters for different relationships. They've got maps you can put in. You can establish enemy versus ally. There's all sorts of amazing stuff you can do. So that's worldanvil.com and I definitely recommend you check them out. Our other sponsor for Nerdsmith is Die Hard Dice, who have amazingly gorgeous dice. If you like metal dice and you want a really, really, really pretty set and you want to have a lot of options, go to dieharddice.com. And if you use the special checkout code GeekThyself, all one word, GeekThyself, you'll get 15.15% off of your first order or your next order if you've ordered with them before. You only get it once. So you can't keep repeating it, but it's still 15% off and Valentine's Day is just a couple days away. So if you've got a gamer in your life, it's not a bad idea. Just saying. Again, that's dieharddice.com. They have gorgeous dice and you should definitely go check out their website. There's another thing I want to touch on that has to do with the gaming industry, which is why I want to mention it real quick during this episode. So... It's no surprise for anyone who's really paid attention to the gaming industry as a whole, whether that be board games, video games, or tabletop games, that it's a very male-dominated industry. There are more women taking part in it and taking on prominent roles, but it is a very male-oriented industry at the moment. And unfortunately, that it has ended up leading to some situations that are not always ideal. Recently, it's come back up in the news again, and as as a whole, Nerdsmith does have a stance on this that I just wanted to briefly touch on. We definitely recognize that standing up against abuse and speaking out against it is one of the hardest things to do. We at Nerdsmith stand in loving support of those who find the courage to speak out, those who have not yet found the strength to, and those who may never do so. To those who are outspoken, who risk their reputation, their mental health, and their safety to share their truth and suffering, we believe and support you. There is still a contingent of the gaming community that needs to understand that toxicity, harassment, and abuse no longer have a place here, and that those who perpetrate it do not deserve to hold the power in this community, in our community. So if you or someone you care about is suffering under any kind of abuse, there are people and resources that can help. There is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Their website is thehotline.org, and you can reach them at 1-800-799-7233. 
There's also the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which the website is rain, R-A-I-N-N.org. And their number is 1-800-656-4673. You are valued, you are loved, and you are believed. And that's, it's a statement from all of us here at NerdSmith. That's how we feel about the subject itself. If you want to read it for yourself, if you want those hotline numbers, uh, you're welcome to obviously re-listen to me reading them off. But also, we did post them on our social media. You can find them on our Facebook page as well as our Twitter. And I, I don't want to harp on it. I don't want to make it a bigger thing than it is. I don't want to give those people the time of my day to make it a bigger thing. If you're suffering in any way... My heart goes out to you. Please seek the help you need, whether it's from anyone at NerdSmith. If you happen to know one of us or want to reach out to one of us, we're always willing to talk. Or one of your trusted friends or family members, anything like that that you have available to you. Please don't hesitate to take advantage of those resources if you have them available. And with that, I'm going to switch from the heavy topic and get into this week's topic of board games. So board games are uh, a childhood pastime for a lot of people. Now, what kinds of board games you played is going to vary depending on what country you're from, where you grew up, what your parents liked to play. So if you're the parent, or excuse me, if you're the child of immigrants like myself, you may have played some games that aren't the quote unquote typical American childhood games. I'm mentioning American specifically because I grew up in America. So the board games that I grew up with are the American board games. Things like Candyland and Trouble and Sorry, Yahtzee, Monopoly, all of those classic American staples. Scrabble. My brother stopped playing Scrabble with me because he didn't enjoy it anymore, unfortunately. But, um, you know, games like that where... There's, you know, a lot of skill involved to a certain degree, but there's also a lot of chance. And chance games versus strategy games is actually one of the defining features that is different between most American board games and most Euro board games, or at least what are referred to as Euro board games. In recent years, there's been a huge influx of Euro-style board games coming over from all around the world. They're not all just from Europe, but that particular gaming style where there's more strategy and not as much chance is something that is often mentioned specifically as being a Euro game trait. And this influx of board games has been amazing for people like me who've always been gamers and wanted to play more types of games, but just didn't even realize that Euro-style games existed. I discovered them sort of in college and a little after college, and I've never gone back. Don't get me wrong, I still love my classics. I still would play Monopoly or Yahtzee or Scrabble if anyone was willing to play against me. Um, But... (laughs) You know, there's something that's really fun about the Euro-style games. And so for today's episode, I'm going to be touching on a bunch of different styles of games, including the sort of classic American-style board game. I'm going to start there because most likely the majority of you listening to me are American. So American-style board games tend to be very, very heavy on chance. If you look at a game like Monopoly as sort of, it's a quintessential American childhood board game. I 
could probably count on one hand the people I know who have never played Monopoly. And of the people on that hand, I would bet that at least several of them have parents who were immigrants. So for them, Monopoly just wasn't a thing because they didn't grow up with it either. Monopoly has a lot of chance involved in it. For example, there's the dice. There's two dice that you roll. So you have a chance of getting a one, uh, well, you can't get a one, but you have a chance of getting a two all the way up to a 12 in terms of your movement. And that's a really big difference in terms of how far you get to move around the board. Beyond that, there's also the two decks. There's the chance deck. It's even called the chance deck. And there's the community chest deck. Those are two more elements of chance that are insinuated into the game. Insinuated. Uh, instituted? Uh, I'm... I haven't had enough caffeine yet, so we'll, we'll just go with what I said. But either way, there's multiple levels of chance going on in this board game. And it's still a lot of fun, and you still have to use some strategy because you have to figure out, how am I best going to use my money? Do I want to buy this property or not? Is it worth it to me to buy it, or should I not worry about it because I can't get the Monopoly anyway? There is still strategy involved in this game. I don't want anyone to think that it means there's none at all. But there's also a lot of chance that changes the outcome. And that is a very, very classic feature of a more American-style board game. It's the same thing for a board game like, sorry, you're rolling dice, which have a chance factor in terms of what you're going to get. Or a game like Trouble, same thing, which is pretty similar to sorry. But you, you know, you roll a dice and you move your piece around. Or Scrabble. Even Scrabble has a lot of chance involved in it because you are pulling the tiles out of a bag and you have no idea what you're going to get. And these are all classic American board games. They're still a lot of fun, but that's a definitely a very different style from the more strategy-heavy games from Europe and some other countries as well. Europe, European games, Euro games, or Euro-style games, as they are often called, are more strategy-based in that there's less elements of chance. There is usually still some randomization factors because there has to be, otherwise you'd be playing the exact same game every single time and that's just not fun. But usually the randomization has more to do with what role you'll get or what strategy you can take or how the other players taking their actions will then affect you. A really, really good example that came over here and has become really popular is the game Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride is a Euro-style game, but it is a lighter strategy Euro-style game. In Ticket to Ride, you are basically playing a railroad tycoon and you're trying to stretch your train from city to city and make different routes. And you're also ideally trying to achieve some things like having the most routes and actually finishing all your routes, which can be really hard because you're competing against the other players who are also railroad barons trying to do the same exact thing. So what you end up with is everyone trying to put their pieces on the board and crisscross them from city to city that they're trying to reach in order to earn points. There is still a little bit of randomization in this game because the routes that you end up with are, are completely random. The deck gets shuffled and then the routes get passed out to the players and you get to choose how many of your first set you keep and you can take more later if you complete your first one. But you have no idea what routes your other competitors took. So you don't know if their route is almost identical to yours or not. All you know is that 
they're going for different routes too. And you can block each other and play different ways and, you know, take different routes if you have to. There's also a random factor in terms of a, a second deck, which determines what routes you can go on based off of cards that are a different color. So you have to have five cards of a certain color in order to place five trains on your track. That kind of idea. What this results in is a little bit of randomization, but a lot of it is strategy because you have to figure out, do I put my piece down here first or do I go here first? Because if I go here and that person is going for a route that's really close to mine, is that going to completely mess me up or will I still be able to do it? How can I use my pieces most effectively? And in even though the cards that show up for you to pick from are random in terms of the color, you pick which cards you take. So if you are picking two cards that you can see, that means that you are affecting the chance, even though it's still somewhat random. So there's a lot of factors there that make it more strategy-based and not just a what am I going to roll on the dice type of game. They're all fun, but it just depends on what you want to play and what kind of games you enjoy. And there's a lot more to it, but I'm going to get into some of the different styles of Euro board games in just a second. The American board games are pretty heavily chance-based games, so I've really already covered those. In terms of the more strategy-heavy Euro-style games, I want to start off with one of the ones that's sort of mm, not the easiest necessarily, I think, for a newer gamer, but one that's more similar to games they may have played before. And it's also a good gateway game because you can play it cooperatively with your friends. So it's not as crazy. So uh, what I'm talking about is Pandemic. Pandemic is a perfect example of a cooperative game that's got some elements of randomness, which people are familiar with. And it's also got very easy to follow directions and rules. So it's a really good gateway game for someone who's never tried a Euro style game before. And there's a couple different reasons. One is because it's cooperative. So in theory, you would be playing this game with friends who've played the game before or with people who at least have played the game once or twice. Even if they don't know it perfectly, they're going to have an idea of what's happening. And because it's cooperative, you all get to work together. It's a really good intro strategy game that's a Euro style because everyone can basically help teach you if it's not a game you, type you've tried before. Now, it does require you knowing someone who has played Pandemic. However, there are other cooperative games that are similar in terms of, you know, playing them together with people. So you're all working against the board game. And what this means is that even though you may not understand fully what's going on because you've never played before, your friends who own the game and love the game can help teach you. And then it's a good starter for introducing you to more Euro-style board games. So if you've never, ever, ever, ever played a Euro-style board game, or if you don't know a lot of people that are really, really heavy gamers, then I would recommend looking into starting with something that's cooperative because you get to work together. So it means that you're not trying to figure out the strategy while also trying to read your friend's mind, while also trying to figure out if you're doing the rules correctly because you've never played the game before, and also wondering, you know, what you're supposed to do next. 
it makes it easier because you take some of those factors out because you're all working together to figure out what you're going to do. So I definitely think that's a good starter point for someone who's never played a Euro style game before because it gives you an idea of what they're like. Now, not all Euro style games are cooperative. In fact, most of them are not. Of all the games my husband and I own, most of which are Euro style, I can probably count on one hand the number of games that are cooperative that we own. Most of them are competitive. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all, you know, cutthroat crazy games. And it doesn't mean that all of the styles are the same. There's a lot of differences. For one example, there are deck builder games. Deck builder games are what they sound like. You are trying to build a deck of cards. There's different ones with slightly varying mechanics, but the basic premise is the same for all of them. You have some sort of currency, whether it's just a set currency or whether it changes based off the cards you have. You have a set amount of purchasing power and a set amount of action power. It varies game to game. The game that often gets considered the starter game for deck builders is called Dominion. And it's a really good game. It's for up to four players, so you can't go more than that. But if you're someone who wants to try something and you're not positive if you're going to like this style of game or not, Dominion's a good one to start with because it's a very classic deck builder game. Every round, you start off with one purchase power and one action power. <laughs> Sorry about that. If you hear some little noises in the background or possibly a dog snore at some point, um, the dogs are in the room with me while I'm recording due to awful weather. It's very cold outside and I'm not going to make them be out there. So they're in the house with me instead. But anyway, Dominion. So you have one purchase power and one action power every single round. And what you do is you can use that to buy cards. Now, in most deck builders, there's some form of currency, which is different from your purchase power. Your purchase power is the fact that you get to purchase one thing every round, whereas your money is what determines what level of card you can buy. So, for example, Dominion has copper, silver, and gold coins. The copper is worth one, silver is worth two, and gold is worth three. So if I have three gold coins, I have nine money. And with that nine money and my one purchase power, I can only buy one card because I have one purchase power. But I can buy a card that's worth up to nine. So that's how that works. And there are cards you can purchase that have different actions and different abilities. And that's where the action cards come in. Your action ability, your action power, your one action power per round lets you play a card that has some sort of special ability on it. It might be plus one purchase or plus one buy is what it's called in Dominion. So that would mean I get to buy up to two things instead of just one. Or it might be an attack card and you attack the other players. Or it might be something that gives you extra cards. There's a lot of different things that can happen. But you play those out and you always start off with one action ability and one buy ability, one purchase ability. And then it just depends on how much money you have, what you can purchase with it. So it's a good starter game for anyone who thinks that a deck builder sounds like something they might enjoy. If you like cards or if you've ever, ever played a game like Yu-Gi-Oh! 
or the Pokemon card game or anything like that where you're building up a deck and creating a, gr- a group of cards to help you go against something against the other players, then you've already played a type of deck builder game. It's just that in those, usually your deck is pre-built. You know what's in your deck. And this one, you actually build the deck from the bottom up. So it's a similar idea, but there are a couple of differences. Okay, and then in, this isn't necessarily the next easiest type of Euro game, in my opinion, but it's one of my favorites, and that's worker placement. So worker placement games have a lot of different varieties. There's so many good worker placement games out there, but the there's the dog again, sorry. The basic mechanic of a worker placement game is that you have a set number of workers and that lets you do a certain number of actions on your turn. So for example, let's say that there's 10 different things I can do, 10 different possible actions I could take, but I only have five workers. That means I only get to do five of those actions. And so I have to decide which five am I gonna do in order to achieve whatever my goal is. Now the goal can vary depending on the game. Sometimes it's earn the most points, Sometimes it's earn money, which basically is the points. Sometimes it's I need to have X, Y, and Z by the end of the game. And now the cat's yelling at me. (laughs) There's a lot of different options. But the common running theme is always there are more actions than I have workers to place out on the board. So I have to decide what I'm going to do because I can't do everything. Another factor is that in order to play the game through your friend or your competitor also places their workers and what that means is that if there's an action that only has one space available only one of you can do it you may not both be able to do that action this turn so not only is it strategy with yourself trying to figure out which things do I really need to get what I am trying to accomplish but it's also which ones is my friend going to put their place, their pieces on? Which one are they going to go for? Because I need to figure out the best spot to put mine in order to get what I need and hopefully not let them have what they need because I want to win. So that's sort of the core of a worker placement game. Each worker placement game has, you know, varying mechanics in terms of how they make you use your workers and exactly what you're doing with them. So it's hard for me to do sort of any blanket statement beyond the one I just made about this is the basics of a worker placement game. One thing I can tell you, though, is that in my experience, there are two main different kinds of worker placement games. And I don't mean in terms of exactly how the game plays out, but just in terms of the actual way that they have you take your turns. One of them is sort of a round robin style. So if I was playing with three of my friends, let's say I was playing with Mr. A, Miss B, and Mr. C. So if I went first, then the first round robin style game, I get to place one of my workers. Then Mr. A gets to place his worker. Then Mr. or excuse me, Miss B gets to place her worker. And then Mr. C gets to place his. So we go round robin all the way around the circle over and over until no one has any workers left. That's sort of a round robin style. Personally, those are the ones I like better because I feel like it's more even. 
in terms of you getting a chance to actually do the actions you need to to win. One mechanic that a lot of worker placement games have is that you can take over the first player marker. So even though I start as first player at the beginning of the game, Miss B might take that spot at some point and take over first player. And then instead of being the first player, I'm the third player at a four. So it changes the mechanics of the game quite a bit because you're no longer getting first choice of everything. This is especially true in the second type of worker placement game, which is, for lack of a better word, coming to mind for it right now, I'm going to call it an all or nothing. So the sort of all or nothing style, what you do is whoever goes first puts all their pieces out. You, you don't go round robin, you just put everything you want out on the board, and then the next person gets to put everything they want on the board. Now, one of the reasons that I don't care for this as much, and I kind of just touched on it a second ago, but I don't care for those type of worker placements quite as much because I feel like it becomes very one-sided. If any one person or two people end up being able to hold on to the first player marker for most of the game, you end up with other people always getting second choice on the places to put their workers, which makes the game a lot less even. Now, this does go back to needing to have a strategy, though, because it is unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that the first player is always going to waste one of their workers on the first player slot. Because it's just, it's a waste of your resources when you have a limited number of workers. However, if you're already struggling to reach your goals, sometimes you don't want to waste your worker on the first player slot either. So there's definitely a balancing act. And there's a lot of different factors that games put in place to make things a little more even. But just in my personal opinion, I prefer the ones that are more of a round robin style worker placement as opposed to I put all my pieces and then you put all your pieces and then she puts all her pieces. I don't know. It's just my personal preference. Everyone's entitled to like what kind of board game they like. So that's not necessarily going to be the viewpoint shared by everyone out there. But worker placement games of all shapes and sizes are a huge, huge staple of Euro-style games. So I've touched on the chance games, which are more American-style. I've touched on the cooperative games. I've also touched on what is Euro-style. And I've touched on worker placement as well as deck builders. These are some of the core games. There is another type, which is called tile placement, I'm running out of time on this episode, so I may not get to all the types like I thought I would. This might become a two-parter. We shall see. But tile placement is somewhat similar to worker placement in terms of having to place out pieces and figure out the best way to do it. The difference, though, is that in tile placement, instead of using workers to achieve different goals, you're putting out tiles and usually building some kind of map. Now, quite often in tile placement games, there is a worker placement aspect because often what you're doing is putting your pieces on different sections as you build them in order to get different things. The perfect example of this is a game called Carcassonne. C-A-R-C-A-S-S-O-N-E. Oh, excuse me. O-N-N-E. Carcassonne. It's a really popular board game, so it's not hard to find. And this is what's known as a tile placement game. 
Carcassonne, though, does involve also placing workers. So it's kind of both. You place the tiles, and the way you place the tiles creates a map. That map, depending on where you put your workers, is worth different points. And then at the end, everyone counts up their points and you see who won. So it's a very heavy strategy game because you have a limited number of workers. And once you've placed them, you can't take them back. There are certain things you can do that will let you have your piece back. But once they're placed, they're stuck there until that condition is met. And there's a, there is some randomization because you don't know what tile you're going to pull out of the pile. You get handed some starter tiles, and then as you're going, you draw from the pile. But it's hit or miss what you're going to get, and whether you're going to get the piece you need or whether one of your friends is going to get the piece you need. So there's definitely some chance involved as well. So this is another good example of a more Euro-style game. You've got the tile placement, and you've also got the worker placement, and you have to figure out how you're going to do both. There are some tile placement games that don't involve worker placement. One good example is a game called um, Castles of Burgundy. This is actually my husband's like favorite board game. So Castles of Burgundy, what you do is you are taking actions and you have two actions and those two actions are based off of what you roll on two dice. Now that's a chance element, but what you do with those two dice is extremely heavy strategy related. So let's say I rolled a three and a four. If you look at your board mat, there are sections where you can pick a tile to purchase, quote unquote, with your dice. And it's number based. So if I have a three, I can purchase something from the spot where there, where it says three, from the three section. And I can't purchase from anywhere else. It has to be that three section. This is one example. There's also an element on your board because where you can place the tiles varies by color and also by number. There's different types of tiles which are different colors and you have to place them in the corresponding color. And then on top of that, the number you use from the dice to place the tile has to match. So if I have a three on my dice, I can only place my yellow tile on a yellow three spot. So there's a lot of strategy involved in terms of how you use your dice most effectively and which places you put your pieces when because there's different bonuses you get from placing certain pieces. So there's a lot of strategy involved. It's a lot of fun. It is definitely a heavier strategy, very, very Euro style game. So I don't recommend that as a starter. If you want to try a tile game because you think it sounds fun, I would recommend Carcassonne. Doing the math on the points can be a little tricky, so definitely read over the rules well or watch a tutorial online. But in general, I would recommend that as a starter tile placement versus Castles of Burgundy, because Castles of Burgundy is definitely harder in terms of the strategies. So I'm out of time. <laughs> so that was a super, super fast overview of some different types of board games to try to help you figure out which one might be the best kind for you. So what I would also recommend is a website called BoardGameGeek.com. BoardGameGeek is a website where they've compiled information on hundreds, honestly, probably thousands of different board games. And what's nice about it is not only do they give you information about the kind of game it is and what the theme of the game is, 
but it also tells you sort of, is this a worker placement? Is it tile placement? Is it heavy strategy? Is it a lighter strategy game? That kind of thing. You also get ratings from other people on the site. So let's say you're trying to find a really good game for your 10-year-old who loves board games and is really interested in some of these new European-style board games, but you want to make sure you find one that you can also play with them that, you know, that isn't something you're not going to enjoy or, you know, whatever. Maybe you're just not a gamer and you want something that's simple enough that you feel comfortable playing it with your kid and letting them play it with their friends and all that kind of stuff. How, you know, however it shakes down. Board Game Geek has different ratings. And so you can look at the board game and say, oh, okay, well, this one says it's good for ages 10 and up. It says it, it that the rules are simple, but that there is some strategy. And, oh, look, it got a really good rating. It's got an 8 out of 10. So, you know, you can look at that information and then have a better idea of what you might be getting into with that particular board game. So BoardGameGeek.com is a good place to check out as well for more information on different types of board games. You can definitely also check out Amazon in terms of the reviews there to see what might be going on. And honestly, there's a ton, 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 ton of YouTube tutorials and playthroughs of different games. You can pick pretty much any game. I know for sure you can pick any game that I listed in this podcast and go to YouTube and type in XYZ playthrough and you'll be able to find someone who played the game and recorded it and walks you through the rules. I know there's one called Rado. There's a playthrough channel, R-A-H-D-O, that my husband and I enjoy. There's a couple of others as well. He just happens to be the one that I'm the most familiar with, but he does a really good job of walking you through the game start to finish. And it's nice too because he worked in the board game and video game industry, so he has a really good handle on the mechanics. He does make occasional mistakes, but one of the things I really like is that when he catches those in when he's editing he puts in little blurbs saying I messed this up here's how you're supposed to do it that kind of thing so it's a lot of good information he's a good one to check out for playthroughs and I don't remember ever hearing anything that wasn't safe for work or that wasn't family friendly from his channel I I believe he's a family friendly channel so it would be a good one to watch with your kids too because then you guys could look at the different board games and try to pick one that you think looks good for your family to try. Um, There's other channels that do that as well. I happen to enjoy Rado's channel and it's cute too because his wife comes on sometimes and they'll play the game together. So it's a lot of fun. Definitely recommend checking him out if you haven't before. Or if you're trying to pick a board game and he's got a playthrough, it's probably going to be pretty good. One thing that he does also, he does the short playthrough that's like a half hour, but then he also does a longer playthrough, usually an extended playthrough, on quite a few games. He doesn't do it every single time, but he does it on a lot of them. So that means if you want a really quick like half hour, does this game look fun? Does it look like I could play it? Does it look like we would all like it as a family you could watch his half hour one and you know it's not too much time out of your day and you'll get a feel for whether or not it's a good game for you whereas if you really want to see an in-depth look at the game because you want to know more because you do think it looks really cool you could watch the extended cut and get the extra half hour to an hour of him playing it through so that you get an even better idea of how it works I will say one thing he does is he usually only plays through a round or two because he he makes fake 
players so that he's he's playing the game by himself to walk you through everything but he plays as if there's another player so that you get to see how the mechanics work between the two different players so boardgamegeek.com and rotto runs through on youtube both of those i recommend checking out and it's rotto r-a-h-d-o and boardgamegeek.com is pretty self-explanatory So those are two really good resources, in my opinion, for looking at different types of board games and trying to figure out what you might want to try. And like I said, a couple of my recommendations for starter games, depending on the kinds you want to play, would be something like Pandemic for a cooperative. It's a lot of fun. Another actually pretty good starter for a cooperative game would be something called Castle Panic. Castle Panic actually might even be better as a starter cooperative than Pandemic, just because Castle Panic has fewer things you have to do. So if you've never, ever, ever played this kind of game before, Castle Panic might be a good starter also. And I'm perfectly honest, these are games that I enjoy playing, and that is why I am specifically mentioning them. However, if these type of games are not your cup of tea, if you want to stick with the traditional Monopoly and Sorry and Trouble, there's nothing wrong with that because not everyone wants to play a heavy strategy game. There are some games out there that are more chance related that have come out recently that still involve a little bit of strategy, but it's not as heavy. You know, there's a lot more dice rolling and things like that. Um, A good example is one called Stone Age. You roll dice to determine how much your food output and things like that is. There's some worker placement to it, but it's not a hard worker placement to understand. So that's a good one. Another more straightforward one is, um, oh God, I just forgot the name, Kingsburg. Uh, There's a game called Kingsburg where you roll a bunch of dice and then those dice add up to a number and that number determines what your different options are. It's worker placement because you have to decide where you're going to put your dice values, but there's a lot of chance to it because of rolling the dice, and the mechanics, again, are not super difficult. So I think it's another one that's good for someone who's really interested in this type of game, but hasn't done a lot of it. Okay, and with that, I'm going to call this episode good, and I will talk to you guys next week. Please remember to check out all the other wonderful shows and productions that we have at nerdsmith.org. You can submit questions or topic suggestions to me on Twitter at amethyst underscore magic with a CK. Or you can email me at geekthyself at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. Until then, don't forget to geek thyself. emboldened by the bizarre or fascinated by the freakish i'm orion lavelle and i'm travis mattingly and together we host tooth and nail a monstrous podcast where we analyze the creatures that haunt your favorite games and stories find tooth and nail at nerdsmith.org keep fighting